As well as meditation, um, I wanted to do some study on this retreat. I think Satyaraja, you were saying that, and you thought that on sadhana retreats we should have a bit of study, not just meditation. Did you say that, especially in relation to Padma Sandhava? No, he said, he said it in Kosh Meeting Clips. Yeah. He said he wanted his particular presentation. Yeah, yeah. Padma Sandhava. Yeah, okay. Whether or not this is, well, it will include his particular presentation, definitely. I mean, it isn't actually easy to find material uh, that really goes with a retreat like this, in my experience. And, you know, we could have looked through the life and liberation, we could have studied Bhante's 1979 uh, lecture. But I decided to follow my inspiration and introduce you to something that means a great deal to me. And I need to give you a little bit of background. Uh, before going into that. So I was ordained in 1976 by Vanti, of course, um, and he transmitted to me the Padmasambhava mantra, the Vajraguru mantra. Uh, it was some time before he gave me the sadhana, therein hangs a tale, and he said very uh, clearly to me, after he gave me the mantra, uh, I'm going to give you the sadhana, you must write to remind me and I'll give it to you. And I wrote to remind him so many times, and <laughs> eventually something did come, um, uh, but it was the Guru Yoga. Um, so anyway, quite a complicated story, but eventually there was this, um, the sadhana, the form of which we, we practice today. I think somebody brought that out to India for me. Was it you, Virabhadra? It might have been, I can't remember. Any, Sorry? Okay. Um, I've actually sat with Bhante twice uh, with him reading through the Padmasambha, the sadhana. Um, and he led that sadhana in slightly different ways. The first time was up in the, what is now part of Samagavasa, right up in the eaves. Um, not, not the very high part of, not the attic, but where now there, yeah, I think there are all the toilets and showers and rooms are, uh, Bhante led us through um, the Padmasambhava Sadhana, yes, in a, in a slightly different way to the way we do it, uh, I, I've led it today, um, yes, on that evening, it was it was a dark evening, he led us through the Padmasambhava Sadhana, then we did walking and chanting, and then he led us in the Green Tara Sadhana, these were for Perna especially, he was just about to return to New Zealand and he wanted these practices. It's quite interesting going out to... I wasn't living at Sakavati at the time and I went out. I was invited to join in and um, Bhante was clearly spent the day in retreat. You know, he turned up and he was in his robes and... his yellow robes and uh, was clearly in quite a different space. Um... The second time, um, it was on an order convention, that one where he gave a system of meditation, the levels of going for refuge, the vision of history, and led us in all a, a number of sadhanas uh, every evening uh, before the puja. Um, and that's pretty much like the form in which I led it today. In fact, it, that, that was the way he led it, with the sun disc and the moon mat and the rainbow-coloured light around him and the rainbow light coming from the figure. Um, 
So not long after ordination, I, I was exploring the Order Library, uh, which is now Vidyadarkasha in the front of the house. And I came across a book entitled Buddhist Himalaya by David Snellgrove. And I was, you know, rabid for things Tibetan in those days. Um, and it was a, a, actually a very good introduction to Buddhism. Bhante actually said it, thought it was one of the best accounts of Buddhism that he'd, he'd come across. And, a, and especially Buddhism in Tibet, um, where Snellgrove had spent some time um, in the tradition, the living tradition itself, or either in Tibet or in the, you know, one of the uh, uh, Tibetan cultural areas that were accessible. Um, and his book included translations or extracts of translations from Tibetan Buddhist sadhanas and rituals, including one devoted to Padmasambhava. And I responded very strongly to the praise section of uh, this sadhana uh, that, that, that Snellgrove extracted from the sadhana, which he translated as the union of the precious ones or the union of all the blessed. And I copied out these verses in a notebook that I kept for such things, which I still have. It's sort of falling apart. It sort of travelled with me to many, many places. A very battered uh, booklet. Um, Anyway, I asked Bhante if I could incorporate these verses into the Padmasambhava sadhana, and he responded enthusiastically. It was very encouraging. And um, he said, yes, you know, it's, you, you should adorn your sadhana. You know, you, 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 that, that's a very positive thing to do, which, which was great. Um, and over the years, I've discovered more about these verses and more about the sadhana that they came from. Uh, they come from a treasure text. The sadhana is itself a turner, discovered by a treasure finder named Ritzin Jutsen Newport. 1585 to 1656. And so they are connected to us because the Tarpe de Lam uh, describes the preparatory practices for this sadhana, the union of the precious ones. Um, The Tarpe de Lam, or the smooth road to emancipation, being composed by Jamgun Kontrol, 1813 to 1899, who also made his own version of the full sadhana. And, of course, uh, Bhante himself discovered the Tapidilam in Kalimpong Bazaar uh, just after he'd received the Padmasambhava initiation from Karcha Rinpoche, who was delighted that he'd discovered these texts because he said, these are connected with what I've initiated you into. And I was talking with um, Suvadra, because I discovered some things in the Order Library in, in an archive, which I probably wasn't meant to discover. I was sort of an illegal turton, I think, um, um, of notes that Bhante had taken from Karchu Rinpoche um, about how to practice the sadhana. And it's pretty clear to me that, that it's describing this long sadhana, the union of the rare and precious gems. And at the weekend, I was talking to... Uh, to Subhadra about this, and he said, this culture in Pache initiated Bhante into this long sadhana, the union of the rare and precious gems. For some reason, Bhante didn't transmit the whole thing, obviously didn't think that was what we needed, and was more concerned with this very simple and direct uh, practice. 
Um, and it shouldn't be a surprise that uh, that was the practice he received because some people say that this, you know, you're all going to want to kind of find this Sardner, well, good luck. Um, uh, it's some writers say this is the greatest of the Sardners of Padmasambhava that you could possibly find. Um, anyway, be that as it may. Um, yes, Banti preferred this simple sadhana. He said to me, it's, it, the form of the sadhana that he gave us is simple and yet profound. It's very direct and uncontrived, really, which Banti seemed to prefer. But, like I said, he did encourage me to recite these verses which uh, I've given you. And I respond to these verses because they combine uh, devotion with a profound meditation on the nature of Padmasambhava. I think one of what one is supposed to do and what's sort of happened to me recently, funnily enough, more towards the end of the sadhana than at the beginning, after the hum has come into the heart, I, I sort of sit and I find some of the verses arising. Um, and it's as if it, they become a sort of contemplation on the nature of Padmasambhava. Um, you know, of course, they're not exhaustive in terms of, of getting at Padmasambhava's nature, and you might not find them particularly helpful. Um, you know, how could any set of verses um, describe the nature of Padmasambhava? But perhaps they'll help us to ponder the inconceivable nature of the greatly precious Guru. And as I said last night, the verses are not too Tibetan, in that they don't refer to all kinds of local Tibetan themes. You know, there, there are so many verses to Padmasambhava, so many things, praises. You can, in our library, we've got quite a few books. We, there's these incredibly long sort of liturgies, but they're often referring to Padmasambhava sort of triumphing over particular local deities and so on, which, you know, very exotic and attractive in many ways, but I can't say that I, much as I'd like to connect with them, I don't. Um, so when we, when we go through these verses, that there is a description of the form of Padmasambhava, and we'll compare that with the description of Padmasambhava that Bhante has given in the form of the sadhana that we, that we practice. Um, and they might seem a bit in conflict, but, um, you know, I've, I've read over the years any number of descriptions of, and explanations of Padmasambhava's iconography. No, they don't all agree. Um, there are lots of different interpretations, and, uh, well, the more explanations, the better, really, so long as they're dharmic. That's the point. So I'm going to start by looking at the, the, uh, the phrase, the union of the rare and precious jewels, the union of the rare and precious jewels, which is, which is where these uh, praises come from. Padmasambhava, the union of the rare and precious jewels. So let's look at that. The Tibetan is Konchok Chidu, uh, which could be translated as simply the union of the jewels, referring to the three jewels, or the union of the precious ones. Uh, Jangun Kontra actually goes back to Sanskrit. He Sanskritizes the Tibetan, although I don't think there is a Sanskrit original of this sadhana. And the Sanskrit is Ratna Samanya Sangha, 
Ratna Samanya Sangha, which would mean literally something like the favourable Sangha of the jewels. Padmasambhava, the favourable Sangha of the jewels. But Konchutidu masters say it really means the essence of the three jewels. Padmasambhava is the essence of the, th- of the three jewels, or as one Lama translates it, as he translates it, the union of all the rare and precious jewels. So Padmasambhava is the union of the three jewels, all the rare and precious jewels, the favourable sangha of the jewels. However it's translated, um, it's very important to appreciate that Padmasambhava is the union of the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha, and the Guru, the Yidam, and the Dharkini. Um, and in the Conchuchidu, there's a whole cycle of meditations, particularly on Papasambhava as the Guru, as the Yidam, a very fierce, red, wrathful form called Guru Dragpo, and the lion-headed Dharkini, Sinamukha. Um, there's uh, also a reference here, if you've ever looked at the uh, going for refuge and prostration practice, which is in the Tathagana, which you know Bhante practiced, and which was a, a sort of part of his deepening understanding of the centrality of going for refuge. The verse that you say uh, with every prostration is, Omahum, to the best of all refuges I go, to the Lama, the Buddha, the Lama, the Dharma, the Lama, the Sangha, the Lama, the Sri Maharika, the Lama, the all-performing king, to the three jewels and the three roots in one, Guru Rinpoche, for refuge I go. So very, very clear from that that you're seeing Padmasambhava as the union of all the refuges. You're really trying to get that into view. And it is interesting that, um, in talking like this, that Bhante really did take that very seriously, Padmasambhava as the union of the three jewels. Um, He transmitted a particular uh, teaching on this to Aloka in sometime in, when would that have been? Maybe the late 70s. uh, At uh, I think it was in a Norwich Centre Council meeting. Uh, They were about to... About to uh, celebrate Padmasambhava Day, and Bhante said, "Well, you know, why are we doing it? Why are you celebrating it? Why are we celebrating it?" And people said, "Well, you know, you've got these new Mark connections, and you know, Padmasambhava transforms all the forces." And Bhante said, "Well, there's a bit more to it than that." <laughs> <laughs> and um, I remember Daloka mentioning this um, to me when I was in Croydon, when I was working in in the centre there, and I. One day I, we were having a, a Padmasambha day was coming up in the centre and I called Aloka and I said, look, can you uh, tell me this teaching? And he said, yeah, sure. So over the telephone he dictated these notes to me. So uh, I've got them here and I'll read them out to you. So Padmas- why we celebrate Padmasambha day? Padmasambha is the embodiment of the three jewels and the three roots, the Guru Yadam and Darkani. So first of all, Bhante said, Padmasambhava wears the three robes of the three yanas, which means that he is the embodiment of all of Buddhism. So very much that total Buddhist uh, approach. Uh, Padmasambhava is the Buddha. 
because he is enlightened. He's called by the Nyingmapas the second Buddha. He is the Dharma because he's learned and realised in both the exoteric and esoteric Dharma. The robes particularly bring that out. He is the Sangha because he's a spiritual friend. And he's a Sangha within himself, which is related to the Dharkani, which we'll come to. He is the Guru because he is the founder of a tradition, which later calls itself Nyingmapa. He's the first guru in that tradition, uh, or regarded in, effectively regarded in that way. He is the Yidam because he gives the Dharma in a specific way to each individual, and he adapts the Dharma to each individual. He has eight and many more forms. And he is the Dharkani. This refers to his time in the cremation grounds with Mandarava. Uh, they are a Sangha. Padmasambhava and, Mand- and Mandarava are a Sangha. Uh, they're not really separate. They're the union of wisdom and compassion. It goes on. Padmasambhava is a community within himself because he's united all the powers and forces within himself and the universe. And he presides over mandalas. He's often depicted at the centre of a mandala with eight darkenings around him. A mandala is a spiritual community. It is the personified forces of oneself. It was really interesting, those notes from Bhante via Arloka. Lots to ponder there. Um, And I will pause from time to time if you want to follow up things. So it's interesting when we think of this name uh, that comes from this sadhana, Padmasamava Ratna Samanya Sangha, the favourable Sangha of the jewels. Padmasamava is not a single entity. When we meditate on Padmasamava, we're meditating on a cosmos. We're meditating on a mandala in the form of Padmasamava himself. It's interesting that, that, that in uh, other passages which I haven't given you, uh, when you meditate on Padmasambhava, the, the phrase that is used, he is a mandala of light. He is a mandala of light. And from a text that is quoted in a commentary on, the, on this sadhana, a, a text that, called The Secret Document, they love these titles. In, this is Padmasambhava talking. In practising me... All Buddhas are practised. Seeing me, all Buddhas are seen. I am the union of the Sukhattas. So any uh, things there you want to ask about? Could you just repeat that last little bit? The quotation? Yeah. In practising me, all Buddhas are practised. Seeing me, all Buddhas are seen. I am the union of the Sukhattas. Where's that from? It's from a text called The Secret Document, which is quoted in Jamgun Kontral's commentary on the uh, union of the precious jewels. Yeah. So would that be a terma? Because it's in his voice. It, it, that, that, the secret document is a terma, yes. Right. Yeah. But nobody seems to know where it comes from. And Jamgun Kontral himself was a turton, so it might have been one of the things that he found. Can you repeat the name of the rat there? Sorry. Ratna Ratna Samanya Sangha Samanya Yeah, S-A-M-A-N-Y-A Ratna Samanya Sangha 
Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, not to be, you know, we need to be a bit careful not to be um, chauvinistic about these things. I mean, of course, every Yidam is the embodiment of all the Sugatas. But it is interesting how explicit it's made with, with Padmasambhava uh, in that tradition. Um, you know, you're, but with every Yidam, you're meditating on, you know, they are to you everything. Otherwise, they wouldn't be your Yidam. I think that's very, very important. They, they, they contain everything. Um, you know, and, that, and certainly in a way, that's the way Bhante um, talked about um, the Yidam. It's you at the end of the higher evolution. It's the way reality, as it were, you know, particularly um, comes to you that you have a very strong response to. And when you know, if, if you decide to take up a pra- another practice, which, you know, I've done at various times, he said to me, it's not that you're taking another practice. Padmasambhava is turning into Tara, for example. You know, it's not, they're, they're not to be separated, as we'll see in some of the verses. You know, they're, 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 they're not separable, these, these figures. So that's very, very important, I think. Can I ask you about... Um, you know the way in these um, families, so you got like Amitabha as the, the head of that family, and you got Padmasambha and Tara and so on. Uh, I'm just, I don't have a specific question, but just in relation to what you're saying about Padmasambha and all the Yadams being the union, um, could you comment a bit on, on that kind of idea? Of oh, families. Of families. And, like, because, yeah. you know, if Padmasambhava was the union of all, then he's the union of Amitabha, well, as well as Tara? I mean, in, in this... So uh, uh, well, yes, exactly. I'm not taking that literally. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> well, the thing about families as well, I mean, how all these things fit together, and bear in mind that, as Bhante pointed out in a lecture, that you, you, you can't really systematise Tantric Buddhism. You, mm. you know, you think that you've got it all sorted... And you can see attempts to do that by tantric. It gets very scholarly tantric Buddhism, uh, you know, all organised and you know. But actually, it keeps tripping you up because it 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 it, it can't. It doesn't all fit together. There's always going to be anomalies. So they will say, you know, all well, all Buddhas are one in the sphere of wisdom, as we're going to see later on in the text. Very important. Uh, but of course, they manifest in particular forms to, out of skillful, compassionate, skillful means, to communicate with particular individuals. So the five Buddha families is a case in point. Five Buddhas are really one Buddha, you know. But but they take those forms because, well, partly, you know, you could say it's the sheer creative expression of um, enlightenment itself. You know, Zogchen are very very keen on this that the the sort of non-dual, um, pure awareness uh, is naturally creative. It's efflorescence. It just wants to do that. But it's also doing it out of compassion to reach particular individuals. So the five Buddha families, for example, are related to the five kleshas. So if you're a hateful person, you know, if that's your primary klesha, you will probably have an affinity with the Vajra family. You know, the Vajra, because, and, and, you know, this is why you have to be a bit careful when you're looking at the whole area of, of, of 
of, of receiving a yidam. Like I've had people say to me, well, I'm going to choose Manjugosha because I'm no good at study. And I said, well, that's not a good reason to ask for Manjugosha. Where do you have a feeling for a bodhisattva? Where is there a strong emotional response or even a strong aversive uh, response? That's interesting information. I think Surita did that with somebody he was somebody he was ordaining asked them to or who don't you like you know let's find out who that is because it well, might he, he said to me he said to me I don't really mind as long as it's not Padma Sambhava I don't want <laughs> Padma and what I happened said, well that's the strongest emotional reaction there you go <laughs> and did he take it up hey? and did he take that he up did, yeah. and is he doing well with it uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> he had a lapse but he's back on yeah okay. <laughs> Yeah, so, so with the five Buddha families, it's to do with affinities, you know, as it were, as above, so below. You know, where is your affinity? Um, you know, because they've got these associations with colours, animals, directions, times of day, um, skandhas, poisons, elements, you know, all that sort of thing. And, and in, in many ways, that's a lot to do with you know, the, 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 as it were, the spiritual psychology. Although how, that, how that's decided sort of traditionally, I mean, we, we do it a bit differently in our, in our movement, but, but traditionally, you know, you would never decide your own yidam. It would be the Lama that, who would decide that, like happened with Bhante and Chattra Rinpoche. He said, who is my yidam? And Rinpoche meditated for a book, and he said, Green Tara. And so Green Tara, there was an affinity between Bhante and Green Tara, so that was his yidam. Or you throw into a mandala of, you know, the Buddhas or something, a a flower, uh, and where it falls, you you take the practice. But I think Bhante's approach with us, I think, is to see where our strong affinity is. That's that's what he seemed to to do. And... and, um, uh, and if people didn't know, he just he would just decide. He'd he'd give them whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Just coming back, because you started with um, Padmasambhava is the union of lots of things, the three yamas, the yeah. whole whole long list. Yeah. And and then he qualified it by saying, "Well, they all are." And, yes. Yeah. Just coming back to to that. Um, yeah, I'm just interested in that. Is there something particular about Padmasambhava? Mm. I mean, yes, he's got the three robes. Um, and is it a Nima thing? Just curious well, it's also that. to do with the, he's the archetypal guru, isn't he? Because, yeah. you know, the guru is the embodiment of the whole of the Dharma in all its aspects and dimensions. You know, that would be the way you would regard your teacher, you know, in that tradition. And Padmasamava is yeah. the archetype of that. Yeah. However, <laughs> in this particular tradition of Padmasamava, it's really strong. Because there are other Nima traditions, like I'm familiar with the Longchen Yingtig, theoretically, and the, the Mula Yoga in that. It, yes, you do refer to the Three Jewels, but not so strongly. In, in the refuge verse. Here it's really strong. Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, Guru, Yidam, Dakini. 
they're all there, very, very explicit. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, why? I, I'm not quite sure, but yeah. But that was clearly really yeah. important for Bante. Very important for Bante. Yeah, yeah. Is that connected, do you think, with his strong emphasis on the centrality of God correctly? Well, I, I, I think, I think as well. He, of course, he it was, perhaps it contributed to, well, certainly contributed to his discovery of the centrality of of going for refuge because he said taking up the going for refuge in prostration practice I think it's in that's such a more light from Tibetan Buddhism mm. you know doing that practice he, he said lamas it seemed that that some lamas had made going for refuge you know the central practice you know the the practice in you know which is the center of everything mm. yeah something in its own with its own life yeah Hmm. Where is that more like from Tibetan Buddhism? It's in the history of my going for refuge. Uh, yeah. 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 Moving on. Yes. Yeah. So with the the next thing we're going to look at is we're going to start getting into the, the text itself. So uh we're going to look at the invocation that that, that that starts the uh, the unity of the jewels. Uh, Hui at the beginning of the previous old world age in the northwest of the land of Urgian, etc. If you have that uh, bit of the text, there's a few general things I want to say about that. Um, so you're probably familiar with the seven line uh, prayer that we did this morning, the White Lotus Prayer, as it's called. Um, but there is a more extended version of that, which is also used. Uh, I've not been able to find any more material on it. Um, but what I want to talk about, first of all, is is the question of invocation and entreaty, generally. Um, the, this prayer that we're going to look at in the text and the shorter one that uh, we will be chanting, uh, we have chanted, they're given by Padmasambhava himself. Uh, again, they're termers. I think Guru Chowang was the first Turton to find the seven-line prayer, but they're, they're, they're Padmasambhava's words. This is why it said he will be present if you chant it. Bhante's in translation is really interesting of the Seven Line Prayer, uh, which he did with Dada Rinpoche, because it, it really does start with Padmasambhava's words. So, whom, uh, in the northwest of the land of Urgyen, on the calyx of a lotus flower, O wondrous, the highest city has been attained. That's all in quotation marks. And thus, Padmasambhava declares, etc. So you're actually voicing. Padmasambhava's words on uh, realising um, the wondrous attainment upon the lotus flower. Um, so, is this, I mean, the, is this the moment of his enlightenment? This is the moment of his enlightenment? Well, it's the moment he pops out of the lotus flower, okay. if that's his enlightenment. We'll come to that. Um, there's lots of sayings of Padmasambhava from different termers. Uh, I just want to talk about um, this business of calling on the Guru, because it's such a, 
a big theme in, in Tibetan Buddhism, a big, big theme in Yuma Buddhism. Um, so again, from this text, the secret document, Padmasambhava says, If I, Odiyana Padma, am supplicated with intense aspiration and veneration, with intense yearning and longing, I will be present before that being. Light rays from my body, speech and mind will give the empowerment of samadhi. Then I, the guru with my consort and entourage, will melt into light and merge with that person. When I am inseparably blended with him, and when he meditates with conviction and pride, at that time he will be one with me. So that pretty much describes our sadhana. There you go. Padmasamava says it himself. What will happen? It's great, isn't it? And when he meditates with conviction and pride. So it's this whole idea that Padmasambhava is present when you do that meditation. And when he enters you, you will have the empowerment of samadhi, the samadhi of being him. (coughs) In other terms, it says that there's no need for elaborate offerings. All that is needed is genuine de- devotion. If there's genuine devotion when you're calling on Padmasambhava, there is no doubt that he will come. Uh, but Contral says it's essential that you do this invocation as a song of longing and not treat it as an amusing game. <laughs> you do this invocation with longing and not treat it as an amusing game. So I want to talk a little bit about longing. I think it does, it's very strong with the Padmasambhava tradition, Abhilasha Shretta, uh, longing faith. Uh, longing faith comes from Samvega. Samvega is a, it, it, you know, it, it's very hard to translate, it's, you can translate it as sort of spiritual urgency. Um, one writer has translated it as aesthetic shock. It's a visceral sense of the unsatisfactory nature of samsara, of dukkha, and its cause, the kleshas. It's that sense that Yasha has when he wakes up in the harem and keeps saying, this is horrible, this is disgusting, you know, this is terrible, this is frightening, and runs out to find the Buddha. That's what this Sanvega is. And you long only for nirvana and only to, to follow the path. And in the context of Guru Padmasambhava Sadhana, you long for the Guru. You, you really feel, you believe that he is your only hope, your only refuge. That's the kind of mood that the, the Lamas recommend. Um, you get this very strongly in the, the Guru Yoga from the Long Chen Yintig. There's a prayer to uh, Padmasambhava and uh, uh, by Jigmilimpa, uh, which goes, Please listen to me, precious Guru Rinpoche. You are the most precious, the most glory embody- glorious embodiment of the compassion and blessings of all the Buddhas. You are the sole protector and lord of all sentient beings. Without any hesitation or restraint, I offer you my possessions my body, my lungs, my heart, my chest, my very being. 
I offer you myself completely. Until I reach enlightenment, no matter what happiness or suffering I may encounter, I will rely on, on you, the great precious one, the lotus-born guru. I have no other hope but you. I am in your hands. I have no object uh, of hope but you in this decadent age when all beings are sinking in the swamp of unbearable suffering. Protect them from all this, O oh great Guru. So these are the kind of, you know, this is the kind of mood that, that you developed. I said at the weekend that, um, uh, in the talk I gave, that uh, Janet Gatso, in her book on Jigmilupa, describes Tibetan Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhist religious culture as a culture of longing. Uh, a longing for the Guru to return. You know, the, he had such a tremendous effect on the people. So this, this, this sense of longing is very, very strong and, uh, you know, it really does characterise, um, you, know, the, 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 you know, the great practitioners in Tibetan Buddhism. Yes. How are we doing? Anything is there before I go on? So, let's look at the syllable Hri, first of all, because you have Hri at the beginning of a previous world age. So Hri is being used here as the seed syllable of the Padma Kula, back to your Padma family. So Padmasambhava, um, uh, so it's interesting, Padmasambhava seems to have both Hri and Hum as his seed syllables. Um, he seems to have both. Sometimes it's Hri, sometimes it's Hum. Um, and even in one sadhana you will get both. Um, so I don't know what to make of that. I suppose it's both the Lotus family and the Vajra family, if you wanted to get into all that. Uh, but perhaps here it's reminding us that Padmasambhava is the emanation of Amitabha and Avalokiteshvara. Uh, that's the, the, the particular uh, message that's being brought out. By chanting Hri or Hum, uh, it said you're invoking the heart essence of the Guru. So then you get this first line of the invocation. At the beginning of a previous world age, or in the first of the eons of the past. Um, I was looking up, a, trying to find some commentaries on this and one uh, writer says that um, it's evoking a time when Padmasambhava was uh, appeared uh, which was a perfect age and he's used this lovely expression very topical for this time of year when it was the springtime of the teachings when everything was very very fresh you know very very alive when everything was growing and Apparently, it was very easy to practice. So you're 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 getting in touch with when you when you say this invocation with that kind of time. Even in the the shorter invocation in the northwest of the land of Urgen on the calyx of the lotus, and so on. You're trying to contact a sort of fresh uh, vision uh, for your spiritual life. Uh, but really, this business of, of in, at the beginning of a previous world age or in the first of the eons of the past, 
the meaning here is actually the primordial past, eternity, if you like, before time. Um, there's a remarkable term found by Jemkun Kontra which begins, this, is, this is a, gives you more information on this prayer of seven lines. When I, this is Padmasambhava talking, when I, the lotus that upholds all things, Padmasamantadara, when I, the lotus that upholds all things, so it's, it's evoking the ground, as they call it in, in, in Atti Yoga, in Zogchen, in Maha Atti, when I, the lotus that upholds all things, was resting in the vast primordial expanse, I was invoked by Badra Sound, the play of ultimate reality, a self-arisen melody in seven lines. Um, and you have to remember that in the Nyingma tradition, Padmasambhava is absolutely everything. I mean, it's really interesting. You know, we think, oh, it's this figure that came and brought the Dharma to Tibet and all that sort of thing. But as the myth grows, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, he is everything. He's the Dharmakaya. You know, he's the ground of all reality. He's the Sambhogakaya. He's the Nirmanakaya. He's the embodiment of reality itself. And I think that is what happens when you have that one-pointed faith and devotion. As if, as if when you really have that one-pointed faith and devotion, something happens to, to, to what you're meditating on. It sort of expands, if you like. You see deeper dimensions to, uh, to that figure. Um, amazing, isn't it? Um, ask a question. Um, Patty talked about something special about Padmasambhava representing the time after the Buddha. Um, the Buddha gave the teachings of the principles, but Padmasambhava seemed to embody it and live it out, particularly, and not just for individuals, but for the whole culture or something. That's how I understood it, something like that. Um, does that fit into what you've just well, said? Um, <coughs> It does. Mm-hmm. It would take a bit of explaining. Ah. Um, in a way, it, 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 it really just brings out this point about how important the guru becomes for people. Yeah. Because as Bhante says, the guru is the Buddha himself, is the Dharma itself, in its particular aspect of transforming all that swirling, destructive or chaotic you know, material that needs transformation in yeah. that sense. Padmasambhava is no different from the Buddha. He is no different from the Dharmakaya. And in the, you know, Bhante makes that point in the lecture because of a passage in the life and liberation of Padmasambhava early on where uh, the text describes these different Buddha fields in all these different directions. And in each Buddha field there's a Buddha who teaches the sutras, followed by a guru who teaches the mantras, mm. you know, and, and, and Bhante sees this as a sort of cosmic law. Mm. You know, you get, you get the Buddha, you get the enlightenment principle, which communicates the principles and practices of the Dharma, you know, in a, in a, a, a as it were, a general way. And then you have a guru coming along, which transforms all the material, if you like, that is stirred up by that, original teaching. I actually think the Buddha himself, I think we 
is also guru in that sense because it's quite yeah. clear that the Buddha also does a lot of transforming yeah. of very difficult material and he does teach the Dharma very specifically. But Bhante is really trying to draw out this principle of transformation in talking about the nature of the guru. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so that seems yeah. significant. <laughs> well, you, you know, I mean, as well, we, we, uh, we should also mention Bhante's poem about Padmasambhava, his short poem, which he thought was a little sadhana. Uh, I was sort of reciting it quite a bit, and I wrote to him about that, and he wrote back. And he said, oh, I've been reciting that since you mentioned it to me. And I said, I think it's a little sadhana. I wonder what you make of that idea. Um, so do you know the poem? Riding a tiger, the guru came. Smile, fierce and friendly, eyes aflame. Riding a tiger from coast to coast with his vajra turning back the demon host. Guru, great guru, dispel my sin. Turn back the demon hordes within. Turn them to forces that support the light. Thou the thousand armed, thou the infinite light. So he's talking about Padmasambha's activity of transforming you know, all of these forces so that they... You know, make the light stronger, but then he, he shows that the nature of Padmasambhava is the eleven headed thousand Dharma Lokateshra, Mahakarunika. His nature is the Dharmakaya Amitabha. You know, sort of, you know, so he sees that very, very clearly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Is that poem in the in the that book? It's in the works? it's in the collective works, oh, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it is a little sad. I mean, it's just like, you know, what you do in the Guru Yoga. I mean, you visualise these figures, but Padmasambhava on a tiger, you know. <laughs> Dorje Drollo, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, just what does it mean by self-arisen melody? Is that what it says? Well, it arises of itself, so it's, it's, it's unconditioned. Yeah. They love this phrase, self-arisen. You know, you get it in, uh, they're trying to say, it, yeah, spontaneous. It's um, it's not dependent on causes and conditions. Yeah. yeah. And of course, Padmasambhava is sort of like that himself in the myth. Carry on. A bit longer. How are you doing with all the, the listening? You all yeah, right? Yeah, just, just warming up. Okay. <laughs> so, at the beginning of a preser previous world age in the land of Urgen. So Urgen is, I think, the Tibetan attempt to pronounce Odiyana or Udiyana, um, the northwest of the land of Odiyana. This is Padmasambhava's mythic birthplace, uh, where he comes from, the realm he comes from. Um, there's no real clarity about its historical and physical location. Some people identify it with the Swap Valley in uh, Pakistan, but there are quite strong um, uh, people who, who say, no, 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 this is uh, from uh, Odisha, from Orissa. Actually, it's sort of nowhere located on maps. It's uh, a wonderful land. Indeed, when you Look at some of these texts. There are Nirmanakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Dharmakaya, Odiyanas, um, hidden lands. Don't we all want to go to them? 
you acquired the most wonderfully excellent perfection upon a lotus flower, and so you are famed as the lotus born. So Padmasambhava springs uh, fully formed from the lotus flower in the lake of Dharnakosha, a lake of lotus flowers, a Padmaloka, a lotus realm. And he is pure from the very beginning. Um, he, he, this is very, very important with Padmasambhava. So he's not only known as lotus-born Padmasambhava, he's also known as Padmakara. You might have come across that um, name, Padmakara, which means something like lotus origin or lotus source. And Sokhidorje, he's known as, lake-born Vajra. So Rohuha. Vajra, if you prefer the Sanskrit. Uh, because Amitabha sent a Vajra uh, from the heart of the, uh, into the heart of the lotus. Hence he's also called Padma Vajra. Some of the biographies of Padma Sandra, Jangan Contra's biographies referred to throughout as Padma Vajra, which is enjoyable to read. <laughs> um, I think one of the things I like about all these different names is that there are lots of different names uh, for Padmasambhava, which means that you can't pin him down. And I think that's really important. You know, in the Life and Liberation, you get these great long lists of his names, how he's known as this and known as that, and, and Bhante picked up on this and quotes in his review of the Life and Liberation um, that Padmasambhava saying, I have eight secret names, eight borrowed names, eight present names, 20 magic names which vary at will <laughs> you know so that's great isn't it he's, you know he's, he's anybody and everybody and anything you know it's so important I think to remember that when you're even in the midst of doing the practice one of the things I've found over the years of doing the practice and I don't think it's simply because of my lack of powers of concentration although it is to do with that the figure is so elusive so I find with Padmasambhava, it's probably true of all of these figures, but so incredibly elusive. And um, I've learned over the years to <coughs> accept that, accept the elusive nature. And maybe you get a little glimpse from some to time of something, but then it just vanishes. And when it gets really good and you start fixating it'll just close down. I mean, I know this is probably true of all sorts of things, but I think it's actually quite important with the meditation on Padmasambhava on Guru Rinpoche to accept the quicksilver nature of, of what you're dealing with. That's, that's part of the practice. I mentioned Jigme Lingpa's secret uh, autobiographies on the weekend, and it, they're really, really so interesting because this visionary, it, they really describe what the visionary world might be like. You know, there he is, having a sort of re revelation from Padmasambhava, seeing Padmasambhava, or being taken to uh, Padmasambhava. And it's amazing, it's incredible. But as soon as he starts to fixate, a voice says, the darkening says, symbols dissolved, and it just vanishes. And he's just brought back to a state of absence, and he feels terrible, and really upset, but that's all part of the practice, that's all part of the training, that's all part of, 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 it, of it, you know, learning to live 
in this different world, this quicksilver world. So that's just some stuff on the name. So you acquired the most wonderfully excellent perfection. It's not really acquired. Another translation says, you have, ha, you have the supreme city. The supreme city, the supreme attainment is there. It's just there, naturally arisen by itself, the supreme city of Buddhahood. It's interesting when you read the life and liberation of Padmasambhava, um, it's a bit like, I guess, the Lalitavistra, you know, the, 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 the sports of the Buddha. Um, it's a play. It's a sort of game. It's a leela. Yes, he pops out of the lotus, fully formed, enlightened, an eight-year-old boy speaking wisdom. I mean, it's very, very interesting, I think, to, 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 to meditate on that. He's adopted. He's a foundling, you know, adopted as you know, the successor to the realm, to, to be the prince, to be the next king. Um, but he knows he can't do that. He knows that that's impossible. Of course he knows he can't do that. And then he goes on his journey, but it's a very, very weird journey. His spiritual path is very, very strange because um, he actually gets himself exiled. He practices unamatacharya, mad observance, in the palace, um, you know, with a trident and Vajra and going naked and, you know, doing terrible things, apparently. Um, he definitely behaves in such a way to get himself expelled and exiled into the worst possible place, the cremation ground. Um, you know, there's all sorts of symbolisms there. And then pass through all the stages, though he's pure from the beginning you know, to gain enlightenment and to gain all the powers to then, particularly with the particular function of being able to take the Dharma to a specific new place, namely Tibet. It's really, really fascinating. I, I don't think anybody yet has done a sort of proper study of the life and liberation of Padmasana and what's really going on. I've had stabs of it myself. But this, this sense of this pure being who then does some really weird stuff really weird stuff, deliberately, um, in order to be even better and even more uh, extraordinary and even become even more effective. Lots to meditate on there, I think. I mean, people sort of have, have difficulties with Bhante, but, I mean, and they like Padmasambhava. Go figure. <laughs> I mean, Padmasambhava is far worse than anything our own teacher ever did. OK, you could say it's a mythical life, but, hey... Lots of tantrics were like that. Really, really <coughs> difficult people. When I um, think of the uh, this business of he has the supreme city already, it's a, it's a, it's a, it, when you read the life and liberation, it's very, very beautiful. The appearance of the eight-year-old child. You know, it's really strange, really spooky. Because there's an eight-year-old child speaking wisdom. You know, what is it? My, when he's asked about his father and mother, you know, my, my father is Samantavadra, my mother is Samantavadri. Um, you know, he's coming from that primordial dimension. Um, uh, I nourish myself on whatever it is. I nourish myself on non-duality and I'm here um, because I'm puzzled. 
you know, I'm here to remove confusion, and I'm here out of compassion. I can't remember the exact words, but this eight-year-old child, who's the colour of the purple of seashells, speaking <coughs> wisdom. It's, it's strange, you know, kid, I mean, those who you have, I mean, I've been around children, like Lokomitra's children, and, and you know, my own um, nephews and nieces, when they were about seven or eight, they sometimes could be like old people, they'd come out with these sort of sayings that would be sort of really wise. Do you know that? You must know that. You must remember that. Uh, And it's quite spooky, uh, quite strange. It sort of plays with your ideas of what wisdom is. Um, And I also think when when, uh, this image of Prabhupada fully formed, utterly pure, out of a lotus, it's the, it's the, the image for me of you know, when the the Atta Yoga people, when the Zogchen people start to evoke, you know, the nature of that pure awareness, Bhagavad himself in self-liberation through seeing with naked awareness, you know, he says, this naturally originating inner radiance, uncreated from the very beginning, is the parentless child of awareness. How amazing. This goes on and on and on. Uh, like that, this sense of something fresh and alive and sparkling. So that's what you're trying to get in touch with when you chant that invocation. Hung to the northwest of the land of Urgen, on the calyx of a lotus flower. Oh, wondrous! In Bantu's translation, oh, wondrous! The highest city has been attained, thus Padmasambhava declares. You, you're, you're trying to start at the top, a bit like as you're doing in the Vajrasattva Sadhana. You're starting at the beginning. You're starting with vision, contacting that uh, quality of awareness. So have that when you're doing the sadhana, that sort of freshness. Try to get in touch with that when you do the sadhana. You know, the blue sky at the beginning, all of that. It needs to be really fresh and alive and a sense of wonder. Um, Where are we? and are surrounded by an entourage of many darkenings. Uh, as Bhante says, the darkenings are all him. The darkenings are the energies of Padmasambhava. He is a mandala. Uh, whether or not you're seeing darkenings, those rainbow lights pouring out of the body, they're, they're all his sort of energy. Sometimes they say in Sadhana, see drops and discs of light. should all be alive. It should be sort of buzzing with life and energy, whether or not you want to sort of see dancing goddesses or whatever. But this sense of really, um, of, of real sort of energy, um, uh, see lots of bindus, as they call them, tiglays. So are those, are those darkinis different than the darkinis that he has when he's in the cremation grounds? He's back to the stupa. Well, the darkenings in the cremation grounds are, are sometimes called the worldly darkenings. They're the ogresses. So they're not the, they're not the same as... Uh, well, when I say they're not the same, I mean, it gets complicated because they are transformed. Uh, because he turns the wheel of the Dharma to them. Uh, so those energies become incorporated into the richness of or become, make the spiritual life more rich. But if you're talking about darkenings as expressions of reality, they're a bit different. 
Um, you know, the, 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 the five Buddhas have consorts, they're Dakinis. The five, the five uh, you know, wisdom ladies, the five, the, the, the five Jnanas, uh, figures like, um, you know, Vajrayogini, Sarva, Buddha, Dakini. So, you know, they are expressions of reality. However, and this is where it gets complicated, they're wearing the cemetery ornaments. Mm. So they are those, that seems to suggest they are those transformed. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. I guess they're not entirely outside you either. I'm just thinking about his lecture on the cremation ground and the representative upsurging. Yes, uh, that's right. I'm going to come to that bit later when I call, talk about the Katvanga, yeah. the Darkani. Um, it, it, it's interesting. Bhante says different things about Darkani's. Mm. You know, yeah, there's the the figures in the cremation ground, and you know, there's a little worldly Darkani's. There's the Darkani is the inspiration coming from. Uh, reality itself. There's the darkening as spiritual companion again. So we're dealing again with figures that are very hard to, you know, to pin down, mm-hmm. and which seem to move between, you know, different move through different dimensions, different thresholds, if you like, mm-hmm. which is actually what they should be. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Can I just ask? Is there any time that the um, that the, the figure will, I mean, you mentioned there's glimpses, mm. and you know they traverse in and out of places. Is there any such circumstances where the figure lingers? And you know, for example, in the moment of death, it, you know, it, it, is that something that you know about? The figure lingers and yeah, stays. Uh, yeah, yeah. As in, so if you do this sauna, for example, yeah. in the dying process, will that figure stay with you? Well, that depends on you. <laughs> well, 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 let's let's. Well, I Let's talk about it two ways. You know, Padmasambhava has said very categorically, according to tradition, I am always present. You know, for somebody who has faith, I will always sit at your door. This is an often quoted expression. You know, if you have deep, profound faith in. Guru Padmasambhava, he will never leave your door. Mm. You know, uh, literally, he's sitting outside your door, or outside the door of the senses, or in the door of the senses. So that's why I said it depends on you. I mean, he says things like, you know, the term term of text, and say, do not forget to pray, do not forget to call on me. So perhaps that's quite interesting. He uses that, don't forget. Don't forget to call out. Don't forget to put something out there. Stay mindful. Mm. Stay alert. Keep apramada. Keep that wakefulness Mm. uh, all the time. Uh, Stay continually aware of me in whatever's going on so that, yes, at the time of death, Mm. I will be present. So there's a lot of remembering that needs to go on, I think. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I just wonder if there's a difference between, on the one hand, being able to maintain a constant imagination of a visual image, mm. right? And presumably different people uh, will be able to do that more or less. It might mm. come and go. 
But then there's something else, which is whether that visual image you're, mm. you're imagining or, or seeing is Padmasambhava in a, in a deeper sense than just having an image of Padmasambhava. Mm. Mm. That there's actually a presence there. Mm. And that's maybe the, the bit that's, that's more elusive. Yeah. Mm. So it, it could be your um, accompaniment through the the bardo, for example. Oh well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you you know, it, you're, you're instructed in the bardo very strongly. You know, recollect your yidam. Mm. You know, they, they you know keep recollecting your yidam and don't forget the mantra. This is really important. I mean, so many times I've been with Banti on seminars, and almost every seminar, when sadhana is mentioned, people say, "Well, you know, I find visualization very difficult." And Banti said. Yes, but what about the mantra? What about reciting the mantra? You can go very, very far with the mantra. And in some ways, mantra is easier. And it's said that, you know, mantra is the Buddha or Bodhisattva in sound form. So, you know, constant recitation of mantra, you know, is very, very important, I think, in relation to the presence of, of Padmasambhava. Yeah. Well, how loud do you mean? Or just... Well, silently. You know, out loud, silently. You know, just wow. keep it going. Keep it going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's incredible. Yeah. You know, and, and I remember Visantra telling me that, um, you know, Bhante said to him, well, recite the mantra as much as you possibly can. And he took that quite literally. He was mm. doing it, doing the mantra all the time. And then I think he had a sort of major sort of shock or something, a major sort of... Uh, you know, it was just very strong, got very intense doing that mantra. Yeah, but mantra is very important. Well, and of course, that's the way your preceptor gives you the, the figure. It puts you back in touch with your ordination, with going for refuge. So the mantra carries an enormous amount with it. Yeah. yeah. That's a good tip, isn't it? Because you, yeah. because you, you, you do go through periods where you're, the, the vision aspect drives yeah. up. Yeah. But Good to have that. Yes, yeah. Take that to, to realise you are still connected with the figure. Bantu's so strong on that. Yeah. He thought, I, I mean, my impression was that people thought that the main bit was the visualisation and the verses. He was saying it's the mantra. The mantra is the most important element because that's the communication. You know, that at the time of your private ordination when you individually committed yourself to the three jewels. So you're really getting in touch with that, and it's and it's easy, isn't it? You know, chanting the mantra. It's it's, it's a really, and and you know you're you're in a very receptive mode with mantra, aren't you? I mean, I, I, you know, Bhante had that little aphorism which some people sort of contested. You know, where he, he says seeing is active, hearing is passive. So when you're doing a visualization and mantra recitation, you're being simultaneously masculine and feminine that's the way he put it but I, I love that thing that, that, that with mantra you're, the hearing sense because you're hearing the mantra the saying is hearing you're opening you're opening to the influence of the teacher and it's really really helpful yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been doing the Pragna Paramitasa mm. for a long time and it says Om Ati Yes, yes. Swaha. Yeah. And so for me, 
And I, I'm just, so the question is whether this is true for other sadhanas like that. So. But for me, it, that the mantra is almost the same as the seed syllables in the different parts of your body. Yes, yes, yeah. And um, I'm just wondering what if you have any thoughts about what your own thoughts or, or what Bantes had in mind. The the two parts of the mantra, Om Ah Hum, and then the rest Badraguru. Yeah. Um, is there a difference, or is, or is are those uh, the, the vibration in your? Well, that's service? a very good question. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I can't formulate it, but you can answer. No, it's a very good question. Well, and maybe we'll do this during the retreat because sometimes, I mean, when Bhante gave me the mantra, he did it syllable by syllable, so it was very slow. Um, and I definitely felt it reverberating through my body. And sometimes we do do it like that, where we'll just do long. We do each syllable very, very slowly. I think we do that on this retreat. It's very, very meditative. And I'm sure there are all sorts of chakras that you can associate it with. But, you know, it, and in fact, I've seen texts where they, they show all the, you know, 12 chakras or whatever it is. So some above the body and some... <coughs> down there somewhere I don't know about that but certainly you get that vibration going on when you do the mantra very very slowly in that way so perhaps we can we can have a look at that and see what 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 that's like yeah yeah I mean I've seen things where each of the um, parts of the Padmasam of a mantra undo the 12 cyclic nidanas which is really interesting because they're in you so reciting the mantra, you're actually transforming the 12 cyclic nidanas into the tree kaya and the five jnanas. I mean, they love all this. I mean, there's Karmalingpa who found the Bada Tadol. There's a, a text I wrote out, I wrote like, the whole thing, where Padmasambhava is teaching the benefits of the Vajraguru mantra to Yeshe Tsogyal. And basically, the Vajraguru mantra's got everything in it. Absolutely everything. Five jnanas, tree kaya, mastery over all sorts of different classes of demons, insight into all the different sutras, tantras, abhidharma. Um, you know, and again, you can see what's going on. You know, it's this sense that the, the mantra itself is all of the dharma. I don't think you need to know all that. I mean, what, what really... What, what I know when I'm sort of going deeper... Uh, it's a kind of nimitta uh, when the mantra just starts to sound and they sometimes say that the mantra should sound like the buzzing of bees you know in Padmasambhava's period you, apparently you're just hearing the Vajraguru mantra and it's, it's just like bees clustering around lotus blossoms just like a sort of drone sound you know and, it's, and everything is communicating the Dharma it's that sort of idea it's not music you know, it's sound. It, it's the sound of reality communicating to you, to all the different levels of you. Yeah. I think one of the things I'm thinking about is the way that sadhana can be complicated. And, you know, so the practices can be complicated. And then all of the things that the practices symbolize, are, you know, like, like you're saying, can be everything. But there's a sort of movement in the practice to, to simplicity. Yes. And you really have that very strongly yeah. with the Papa Samba yes. 
because in the end, it's just yeah. free, um, home mm. rather, all free. <laughs> in your heart, and it's not really your heart because your heart is mm. dissolving or something. So there's that movement towards simplicity. I suppose maybe the question I was asking for is about the relationship between the mantra and the seed cells that are part of the mantra. Mm. Mm. Just say the mantra. Well, yeah. one of the things, well, I like what you're saying about simplicity because um, I don't, it's not really answering, it's all riffing off your point, really. Is that, that when I, when, so when Bhante said he was going to give me the sadhana, I thought, fantastic, nobody's had that yet. And it'll be long and complicated and all sorts of things going on. Actually, I was really, actually, he'd given me the sadhana in the mantra. A one off on solitary retreat. The mantra was so strong from Bhante. It was, you know, I can't really describe how, how alive it was. It had its own life, which had all sorts of effects, which I couldn't, you know, I couldn't handle in some ways. But when I sat down to do the practice, I just saw Bhante. I mean, it was just a natural guru yoga. And I said, no, 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 I want Padmasambhava. You know, and, and actually, of course, I was seeing Padmasambhava, and I really regret not surrendering to that there was no text there was no explanation you know I wanted you know I'd gone to my head if you like in I was greedy in relation to it there was just this direct transmission and that is of course what we're really doing at the time of of um, initiation in, in in you know when we're ordained that's why I don't like using the language of sadhana to describe that. I think that's misleading. What's really going on is that you're being introduced to, to use a phrase from Henri Corbin, your celestial alter ego. You know, you as you are in reality. You know, your, your nature. In a sense, sadhana is secondary. That is the form that develops to describe the most effective way to meditate on that figure. Now, it might not be effective, and it's certainly proved to be the case. I've known people who you know, were initiated into a particular deity. The sadhana form, would, they lost their devotion. And you have to sort of, you know, and yet their devotion was so strong. So you have to sort of strip it back for the individual and say, no, no, you know, follow this, follow that, let it, I was talking to a lad who, who's just gone out to Gukiloka and you know, we were talking about what, what practice will you take and he said, well, I, I really respond to Avalokiteshra. So I said, well, which particular form? And he said, but he said that, he said, I, that immediately puts, closes it down. And I said, well done. It, 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 it's Avalokiteshra Mahakarunika. And I said, that's what's important. And it was such a relief for him. He loves the mantra, loves all-pervading compassion. I said, well, let it grow from there. And I said, you know, you can talk about that with your preceptor. You know, it's more that you're joined to this, to this, whatever it is, this Buddha form, this Bodhisattva form, this Guru form, that really communicates with you. And the sadhana is to help you to connect 
You know, it's to help you find ways of connecting. That might be very simple, extremely simple. It might be complicated. It might have lots going on in it. I think that depends on the individual, depends where you are in your life. You know, and I think that's so important. It's that directness that's, I think, so, so important. Touch on, Roger. Well, just, I mean, this is probably a bit off point, but I just, it's the way you're talking, it sounds as if the giving of the mantra is a sort of pointing out instruction. It's yeah. introducing you to your yeah. true nature. Yeah, well, that's what Bhante yeah. said to me. I is mean, it? Yeah. yeah, he said, he said, this is, first of all, he said, this is you at the end of the higher evolution. Then he said, this is what you really are. Yeah. Yeah. If you could but realise it. What you really are. You in eternity. You know, and, and in a way I feel very often that the, my, my real sadhana is being in that tiny little room in Thetford Forest with Bhante. That it's all in there. Everything is in there. Everything. You know, my whole spiritual life is in that... It's in that moment, you know. And and if Bounty hadn't given me anything else, gave me so much, it's it, it's there, you know. And and um, oh, sorry, I've got a bit emotional, but that's it. That's it. So if you could have just stayed with what he'd given you, I'd be you'd be much better off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I messed it up. Yeah. My. My, the Rudra in me, you know, appropriates it. Of course, that got short shift from the Vajraguru. He just ignored me when I was in that state. And, you know, I had to, had to go on a path of working out, you know, what it meant to be in relationship with, 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 with a teacher, a human teacher, you know, and that, that was a journey. Yeah. Yeah. But I think this is, I mean, I must admit, some of my... You know, sorry to introduce this, but some of my Sufi reading I found very helpful when they talk about their version of initiation, which is called, I think, bait or bait, um, where the the sheikh, the peer, um, and my peer is Bhante, he he gives you the name. He'll give you, you know, a particular name of Allah, you know, which might even be Rahman, um, you know, the compassionate, the all-merciful. And then you're instructed to visualise your teacher in your heart while you say the name. You know, and, and I found that very, very refreshing to read. It's like, you know, you know, Sufi practice is like guru yoga. The teacher, you know, is coming from that dimension and you familiarise yourself that through visualising him in your heart and saying the name. Um, anyway, better not get too carried away and stay with... Um, you know, Buddhism. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I, I think it's always good to remember that. If you're struggling in the sadhana form that you've been given, just go back to the mantra. Go back to... Just go back to that. Go back to, you know, whatever connects you. It's so important, I think. Ma Prasara. Yeah, so just... Um Using the mantra a lot, that's a good thing. Um, what about um, freely using, in the case of Padmasambhava, the, the, the seven-line invocation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but, I mean, I think it's legitimate because it is. Um, in, I I chant it a lot. I chant it regularly, um, and it's. Bhante did transmit it in the Guru Yoga. 
it's 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 part of the supplementary devotions in that practice, as well as the Todrensal mantra, uh, which yeah, yeah. More conducting than the mantra itself. Okay, there you go. There's your answer. Yeah. If you're chanting the mantra all the time internally, how do you do that without? Um, sounds a bit silly saying it now, but how do you do that without cheapening it? Or how do you maintain oh. a sense of um, reverence towards it while you're, I don't know, doing washing up or on the toilet or that kind of thing? Well, oh, how do you, how to describe that? I mean, I associate that when the mantra in that context, um, you know, like on the toilet, or I mean, in, in you know, or washing up, or just going for a walk, or whatever it might be. It's it's very hard to describe. Um, I associate it very strongly with mindfulness, with that pramada. It's it's like there's this. <coughs> Uh, you know, how can I describe it? It's like a sort of sound, the unstruck sound, because nobody can hear it because it's being said with a quite different... It's being said in the secret place, in your secret place. And I don't know, it just seems to be full of meaning, um, providing meaning, uh, but it's completely... The, it is the world, realm of undefined meaning, as Bhante called the realm of myth. And it's somehow there as a kind of accompaniment. I associate it very much with the drone of Indian music, you know, the, the tambura sound, you know, the, the, which, you know, great, you know, Indian musicians is the most important sound in a piece of Indian music. You know, it's uh, because it's, it's, it's evoking, you know, the cosmic vibration, you know, which is pervading everything. So I associate it very much with that. And when you got a piece of Indian music going on, you know, you hear all the stuff over the top, but there's always this sort of ocean of sound that, that that's underneath it. So I sort of associate mantra in that way throughout the day with that, if you like. Is that and you're definitely not cheapening it. It's more everything is being elevated by that awareness of mantra. That that's really what's going on, I think. Yeah. I've got a counterpoint to that mm. because I've found chanting lots of mantras. Sometimes it just runs into the ground or something. And I read Nagapriya's book on um, Shinran, the promise of the sacred world. And it, um, talking about Shinran, talking about his teacher Honen, and Honen recommended lots and lots of chanting of the Nembutsu and doing 10,000 and so on. And, um, and then Shinran said, well, actually, just chanting the mantra a few times. Can be effective. It can get you know gets you to the um, you're reborn or whatever mm. in the sukhavati. And I thought, oh yeah, that's the thing. I, I need sometimes just to chant it a few times, mm. just chant a few times and stop, and then, and then come back to it again and chant yeah. it a few and stop. Because I found this Tibetan approach of chanting loads and loads of mantras yeah. actually was too much for me. It just yes. um, yeah. switched me off from the mantra. Yeah. Well, you, very very good point. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think also if it's done as a, as a nature of a prayer, mm. in the sense of you're naturally opening upwards, as it were, I think there's, you're, you're, you're making connection there in mm. a way that's not, um, uh, it kind of almost can't be cheapened because, you know, 
Yes, yeah. There's devotion, isn't there? I mean, there's also this sense of, 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 of that, that, you know, which Banti has talked about more in relation to puja, but I think it does also apply to this, that, that look, you're joining in something. Actually, the mantra is always there. The puja is always going on. You know, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are always performing in this way, and you're just joining in for a while, you know, and... You know, which I find a very, I mean, again, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful myth, a wonderful idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a different sense, it's like the silence is, is pregnant, it's a pregnant silence, isn't it? Yes, yeah. 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 Can we have a quick look at the drone you were talking about? There's something came to mind. This is the deep sound, isn't it? Mm. Um, what came to mind was Lou Reed, the musician, talking about the resonance with the bass, the instrument, the bass. Mm. Mm. And the reason why we resonate with it deeply is because it's the heartbeat in the room. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I'm just wondering, I'm kind of just thinking it out here, but I wonder if that's why there's a, a maybe even an almost hypnotic quality to the drone mm. or the bass, because mm. it, it kind of takes us into a primordial experience. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Banti thought, for example, that well, they, you know, with mantra, they say that you should try and integrate mantra with breath, you know, with your breathing somehow or, or other. Um, and, you know, Banti thought that, that, that Tibetan Buddhism um, mantra chanting or Tibetan orchestra or the invocation goes straight to the central nervous system. That's the phrase he used. And it's, and it's, trying, to, um, it's trying to evoke something transpersonal. So, you know, you're, you're being activated on quite a, a primal level so that you can encounter something which is transpersonal. That's why, you know, he was a bit concerned about any sense of personal expression in puja. You know, there's this fashion for all sorts of harmonies. They're very personal. It, it, they're more, they're, you know, they you know, can be lovely and all that sort of thing, but in a way they're, they're, they're not quite right. You know, because they're not taking you to uh, you know they can be very emotional and it's not I'm not saying that we shouldn't be emotional but you know like those concluding mantras or doing the Padmasambhava mantra just on one level it takes you to a very different place because you're more concerned with sound than you are to do with music big discussion let's not go there we've been going for an hour and a half so I'm wondering if we should uh, well, I'll just finish with a bit on the darkenies because that's where this all came from. <laughs> What's that? Uh, just a quick request. Uh, might it be possible to have some choir practice for the invocation? The, the, the seven line prayer, yes. The tune is not familiar. Okay. Okay. Should we do it a bit in call and response and all that sort of thing? Or try? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We can do that. Maybe we can do that tonight. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this business about the darkenings being him, his energies. Um, in uh, in David Snellgrove's Buddhist Himalaya, there's a very nice description of darkenings. They're the guardians of the mystery of Amitabha, hearers of the word of Avalokiteshvara, doers of the work of the adamantine lotus born, keepers of the word of the blessed, watchers of the word of us yogins, 
companions of all who practice the Dharma. It's great, isn't it? So that there's this sort of sense as well that Dharkanis are kind of emiss- emissaries as well. There's a lovely song by Dujon Rinpoche where he talks about the Dharkanis and the Vidyadharas, which are kind of Dharkas, yeah, um, as being like messengers from Padmasambhava. He can't see Padmasambhava himself. Well, he has a glimpse, but then it, that fades. So he asks them to come as messengers to him. To carry him up, you know, to the lotus ball. You, uh, you get it to some extent in the chur as well. Yeah. They, uh, you send out hosts of darkenies to feed mm. various beings, mm. or in the black horns, you send out black darkenies to gather everything up. Right. There you to go. feed them. Yeah. They don't want to come. Yeah, because they move darkenies, don't they? Heaven and earth, and you know all that. Okay, let, let's let's stop there, and we'll carry on tomorrow. Yes. Yeah. 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 Session. Yeah. I don't know how far we're going to get with this. Done. Yeah. Yeah. We'll go a bit faster tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah.